Hi, this is Neil Satin, the host of Relationship Alive. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say that if you find this podcast helpful, please consider making a donation to help support the podcast. You can do that by visiting neilsatin.com slash support or texting the word support to the number 33444 and following the instructions. And you can choose any level that feels right to you. Thank you so much in advance for your help in ensuring that this podcast can continue. I also wanted to mention that if you haven't picked it up yet already, you can grab my free uh, top three relationship communication secrets. These are communication tips that you can incorporate easily into how you communicate with your partner, and they're based specifically on things that will help you grow closer and more connected to your partner, even if you're communicating about something challenging. You can get that by visiting neilsatin.com slash relate or texting the word relate to the number 33444 and following the instructions. All right, on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. Well, it has been a privilege to have back on the show Harville Hendricks and Helen LaKelly Hunt, who are back here to resume our conversation from way back in episode 22 about safe conversations in Imago and all of their work around how to have an amazing, thriving, conscious relationship. Their classic book, Getting the Love You Want, A Guide for Couples, is a must read in terms of thinking about how to make your relationship better and how to make it even more amazing if it's already going pretty well. And on top of that, they have a new book coming out called The Space Between, which we'll have a chance to talk about today. In general, what we're going to tease apart is, um, first, some questions from you, because I went into the Relationship Alive community on Facebook and said, hey, I'm talking to Helen and Harville again. What would you like me to ask them? So we're going to get to some of those questions. And then on top of that, I would like to do both things that, that I just mentioned, figure out how do we make what's awesome even better and and how do we take the things that we're frustrated about in our relationship and turn those around into um, to something that connects us even further? So um, that's the plan. And we will, as usual, have a detailed show guide, which you can download by visiting neilsatin.com slash imago2. That's I-M-A-G-O and the number two. Um neilsatin.com slash imago was their first episode with us, um, which I recommend you check out as well, since this is going to be a continuation in some respects, though you don't have to stop now. We'll, we'll give you all the background information you need. Or you can always text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions, and I'll send you a link to the show guide for this episode, as well as the other episodes of Relationship Alive. Okay, that is enough from me for the moment. Helen LaKelly Hunt and Harville Hendricks, thank you so much for joining us today on Relationship Alive. Thanks, Neil. We're delighted to be here. Yes. 
It is a pleasure to have you back, and especially now, we're right around the beginning of July that we're having this conversation, and it was about a year ago that Chloe and I were in your Getting the Love You Want workshop at Kripalu, which was just an amazing experience, and um, so it's really fun to talk to you now, also because we're getting married in just over three weeks, so... Oh, great. Wow, congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you. Look what a workshop will do. Exactly. Exactly. In fact, your workshop was really helpful for us in a number of ways. Um, And I'd like to start, actually, if we could, by talking about one of those ways. And it was probably the most amazing part of the workshop for us Um, which was the positive flooding exercise. And I know that this can be great for couples who are having trouble reaching reaching for the positive feelings that they maybe once experienced with each other. And because we were actually in a really good place, this exercise was really amazing for us for amplifying those feelings. So can you talk a little bit about what positive flooding is and and maybe even how you came about that exercise? Sure. Well, Alfire and I say a little bit at the start and Harville will go into depth. Great. Um, No one... Well, no one's ever asked us this question, Neil, <laughs> and especially at the start of a, an interview, but this is so cool. The way I would answer it is that it's a brain exercise, that um, so many of the couples who come to a workshop have their list of issues that they um, are planning to deal with at their at the workshop and they're looking forward to their partner waking up to how much they need to change to make you happy. And, uh, and they're going to change to make you happy. So they want to deal with their issues. And, uh, throughout the workshop, Harville is so masterful at, um, keeping them out of their issues and, and putting them into another part of their brain where they can first acknowledge what, each other is doing right, which makes it safer to deal to then deal with the issues. So um, I am a dialogue partner with the theory. I'm a great number two. Like I love doing this with Harville, but he is the one that so masterfully makes the theory succinct and um, and brings in um, the order of how the theory evolves. And it's just so masterful. I'm so honored uh, to be his partner. So this positive flooding really represents the fact that energy follows attention. What you focus on is what you get. And the couples end up um, uh, one at a time, you know, taking turns, one surrounding the other and just sharing all the positive things they feel about their beloved. And they had they had no idea they would end up doing this at the workshop, and they're just well as you know, you had no idea that that would be what you would be asked to do, and it it takes you out of that um, resentful part of your brain um, where you've kept the list of all the things your partner has done that has really been insensitive to you and really hurt you or frustrated you. 
and it moves you into the part of the brain that um, you realize that wakes you up to how wonderful your partner is. The issues haven't gone away, but now there's a whole new way you can deal with them from another part of your brain that is um, in the neocortex, uh, in that dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, where you're more uh, curious about your partner and and you you're um, you're not judgmental and the problems get solved. So with me simply saying it's a brain exercise, horrible, why don't you delve into the details? Well, with the, uh, the details are that we ask a couple to come up and demonstrate, and we uh, most exercises are uh, two-chair exercises where couples face each other and engage in some form of dialogical exchange uh, and, and process that. This one is a one-chair exercise in which one partner sits in the chair and the other one circles the partner uh, and under our guidance um, floods the partner with positive adjectives. And there are, it's a three-minute exercise. One minute is focused on what we call body parts so that uh, the person circling will uh, appreciate, uh, identify and appreciate all of the features of the partner's body that they appreciate. Like I appreciate your, the beauty of your hair, the, uh, I appreciate the curve of your nose, I appreciate the blueness of your eyes. And they um, start with uh, um, what we would call a natural uh, volume. Uh, the, the volume is, is normal. Uh, so they circle for a minute um, and say as many positive things about their partner's body as they can in a minute. And then we switch them for the second minute to their partner's traits. And the traits are things like... Um, I appreciate your warmth, I appreciate your intelligence, I appreciate your kindness to others. And so they spend a full minute identifying all the positive adjectives um, and traits that they can come up with about their partner. And then they, we call time. And the third minute uh, they shift into immediately is has to do with um, events or, or things the partner has done, behaviors the partner's done that they appreciate and uh, uh, and they, they, let me go back and say on the second round, um, we asked the partners to raise their voice um, so that they would move from I appreciate your body to I appreciate how uh, warm you are. And then when they get to behaviors, which are things the person has done like I brought them chicken soup when they had flu or uh, was kind to my mother at Thanksgiving, they raise their voice again, and this time they're up to, and I appreciate the time when we were at Thanksgiving and you were kind to my mother. So they're nearly to the shouting point. And then they, uh, when they finish that round, they stand, come around and stand in front of the partner, and we ask them to sort of uh, begin to sort of uh, squat up and down, and finally to leave the floor and yell at the partner at the top of their voice, I can't believe I'm in a relationship with, or if they're married, that I'm married to a person as amazing as you. And they uh, say, I love you, I love you, I love you, you're, you're wonderful, you're amazing, you're, and so forth for as long as they can. Uh, so it takes about three and a half minutes to do this exercise, and then they switch and the other person does that. 
uh, they end the exercise also by standing, and by this time, of course, they're into amazingly intense energy. And they stand and they give each other a full one-minute hug in which they calm down. And then they switch and do it again. So the rationale for this, there are basically two rationales. Um, the positive rationale is that we walk people through the workshop by uh, exercising what we call their sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, uh, the two sides um, of, the, uh, of the nervous system. Uh, the sympathetic side is the one that um, is um, active and uh, the parasympathetic side is the one that uh, is calm and quiets down. So we want uh, people to uh, do intense work in which there's a lot of energy, and then they may do an exercise later on that's uh, very quiet in which they share uh, an appreciation or a caring behavior, but we do both of those. Also, at the end of the exercise, of the jumping up and down at the end, and the reason for the hug is that it also shifts from the sympathetic to the parasympathetic nervous system. As they settle down, they're breathing together. They're now holding each other also in, um, in a full body hug. And when you do that um, for that long, you activate the neurochemistry of oxytocin, which is a bonding chemical. And if you activate that chemical when you are in a positive place, it amplifies the feeling of being connected to this person at the neurochemical level. You're touching them physically, so you get a, a neurophysiological sensation plus a chemical sensation, plus you've just heard verbal uh, positive connections, and you've also, uh, in looking at each other during this time, uh, the, your eyes change from a glare to a gaze, which means your pupils are larger, so with all of the factors of the senses, thinking, feeling, uh, touching, and movement are all being activated at the same time in a three-minute exercise. And all of that is in service of bonding. And we have, uh, I'm, I'm so uh, uh, interested that that was a high point for you. Uh, <clears throat> we, we started it many years ago, which is the second rationale, many years ago, as a counter to people's experience of negative, negative energy. Um, and it was uh, at that time a kind of an, exper an experiment to just have people have the memory of intensity connected to positive exchanges instead of the memory of intensity connected to negative exchanges so that the brain could um, shift from always responding to intensity with apprehension, it can now respond to intensity with, with, uh, with anticipation and appreciation. So we wanted to give people different memories with, uh, with intense energy. Um, and so that was the reason for doing that. And it, it also countered a exercise that we often did in the workshop many, many years ago, we call the container, in which the whole purpose was to get people to get their negative feelings out. Well, it turned out that that exercise of getting negative feelings out was counterproductive, that people left that experience with, um, with, with bad memories. And we learned as, as we were beginning to abandon that, uh, we learned uh, through a few articles that began to come out that 
across the spectrum of mental health uh, and therapy, the, uh, there were questions about the value of venting, um, and especially venting negative feelings for therapy. There had been a period in which, in, in therapy, in which uh, the catharsis, which was a word that Freud uh, used and was a part of the analytic tradition that catharsis, not necessarily intense catharsis, but expressing emotions was supposed to be therapeutic. It was encouraged and people were uh, go, going through healing through catharsis. But we discovered that, that that negative catharsis actually increases the negativity that is being cathartic. Uh, the brain sciences uh, um, were the basis for this and uh, as the brain sciences after 2000 began to become more uh, uh, more uh, focused uh, on, on small areas of the brain and on particular areas of the brain and on neurochemistry, that uh, venting uh, was in fact uh, increasing the sensitivity of those areas in the brain. Whereas if you switch to positive venting, it increased those areas too, but it left you with bonding memories instead of disconnecting memories. So that's why we did why we did that. We uh, what we're surprised is that this exercise, which comes at the end of the workshop, has resulted in uh, numbers of couples saying that it was so powerful for them that they decided, uh, having not quite uh, decided it during the workshop, but decided doing this exercise not to divorce because the push to say positive things about the partner activates feelings that had been blocked and repressed for a long period of time. They didn't know they felt that way or they didn't know their partner felt that way. But when they discharge all these positive energies with intensity, it changed the whole uh, ambience of their relationship from uh, being disconnected and probably going toward divorce to reconnecting and staying married. So it became what was a little tiny exercise in about a, a 14 hour experience uh, turned out to be one of the most um, impactful ones for many couples on the edge of divorce and those not, it really increased the uh, quality of their relationship. So that's a long answer to that question, but it was a, a, a nice question because nobody has ever asked us that and gives us an opportunity to sort of download for ourselves the rationale for doing that. Yeah, and I mean, so 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 many things in your response that jumped out at me. One of those things being, uh, you know, I'm thinking about when I work with couples that are in trouble. In many respects, they're they're shut down, and suddenly yes. I realize, like, oh yeah, they're they're often shut down to their positive feelings and their negative feelings. Yes, and so. <clears throat> It makes total sense to me that this would be a way of really jump-starting the positive emotion. And if you're going after, you know, the fabulous Gottman ratio of, of five to one, five positives for every one negative, then you right. need that positive energy to be really um, amplified. Yes. Um, the other thing that it reminded me of was... Um, actually, this uh, kind of, uh, of it's like a parenting methodology called nurtured heart, where mm -hmm. it talks about energizing a child's positive behavior. And I started thinking like, oh, yeah, because 
sometimes, especially in a situation where you're shut down from your partner, you're really just craving their energy. And it's almost like anything, like I just want anything from you. And sometimes that's where people like do the negative stuff just as a way of getting their partner and getting their attention. So, um, so how amazing to repattern that for us in relationship to give that kind of energy and attention and intensity to a positive experience um, and to and to have that reference point of, oh, yeah, like things can be really intense and amped up and positive. In fact, yeah. for me and Chloe, that was one of the most fascinating things was that experience of yelling at each other um, or, you know, it's one at a time. So in that in the demonstration, she was yelling at me her love and how powerful it was to be yelled at, but have it not be about having done something wrong or messed up or, you know, whatever it is to like, have it be something really positive. Um, I mean, it must be a lot like how athletic teams feel when the crowd cheers, you know, after they get a goal or something or basket or something oh. like that. Yes. Um, and so it really felt that way. Like, wow, it, it just impacted me so deeply and on the flip side, also the experience of yelling my love and affection with that intensity was new for similar reasons. And it also gave me the experience of like, wow, I do like I love that big, like that big that I can shout at the top of my lungs how much I love. Yes, yes. Yeah. And and, and the, the fascinating thing about this that we are also learning from the neurosciences is that Whatever you uh, express, you also experience. So when you're, uh, there's a part of your brain, of our brains that are, that is, um, I think the simplest way to put it is a part of your brain is self-directed and self-knowing. And so when you yell and you're using your upper brain to do that and it triggers your emotions, the part of the brain, that is self-centered and only receives messages from the brain is experiencing yelling at your partner as though you're yelling at yourself so that you receive all the positive energy, your own neurophysiology and your own neurochemistry receives all of the energy that you're discharging towards your partner. So it's like a twofer. Uh, For one yell, you get two impacts, (laughs) one on the person outside and one on your own uh, neural, psychoneural, psychochemical system. So we also, uh, knowing that, know that the opposite is also true, that when you yell negative images, negative energy at your partner, uh, especially if it's charged, um, you do the same thing, that your brain uh, reacts to your own negative yelling in the same way your partner reacts. Namely, it triggers the uh, vagal net, uh, which is activated uh, as a result of signals from the amygdala in the brain, which is that part of the brain that is, is, uh, is sensitive to danger. It triggers that vagal net and also the neurochemistry of cortisol so that you receive what you give. And so we put that in a little aphorism that whatever you do to others, you do to yourself. But this is not, you know, in, in the in the New Testament. I think there's a scripture about whatever you two do to others will be done to you. 
Um, and but in that scripture in the in the Bible, it's sort of a threat that you should uh, take care of your neighbor. Uh, otherwise, there may be some eternal consequences. But what we've learned is that it may not be that at all. It could be that Jesus um, uh, was aware. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be surprising if he was God to, for him to know that whatever you do to others, you do to yourself at the same time. And nobody else has to do it to you because you you achieve the outcome, whether whether it's positive or negative, by your own action. So what we push, since we don't promote ourselves as this is a spiritual practice, although we think it is, um, it, that what we do promote, that when you do this, you benefit uh, from it. Now, one of the things I just got to um, pick up from you, so it's a learning point. Uh, you mentioned something about uh, the, all, the, the responding to the alternation, taking turns. It just occurs to me, Helen, what a, a different way this exercise might be done is for the two people to uh, yell at each other uh, at the same time. That they say, I can't believe it. You know, you are amazing. Then you yeah. say, you're fantastic. And yeah. I say, it's amazing. So we might, um, I just picked that up, that to in simultaneously do it may have a similar or better benefit than alternating. I don't know, but we could experience and get couples to give us feedback. I so wonder. Thank, yeah. Thank you you're welcome. And and that's fascinating I because I can see like having experienced it, the benefit of just you know, being one or the other, sort of like taking it all in. But I could almost see like a next step when you think about like couples that maybe escalate by yelling at each other, you know, you're an asshole. No, you're an asshole. You know, that sort of thing. Like once they've had the experience of flooding to, to, to take it to that place of like, you're amazing. No, you're amazing. And it could be really amazing. (laughs) I think think Helen and I do the, flooding in a kind of, uh, uh, in, in another way, is people ask, well, how do you integrate this into everyday life? And what we do is um, is neither one of the two things we're talking about in our everyday life, but it's more like one or two sentences at a time. When we cease each other, we may say something really intensely positive to each other just as a sentence. And then uh, either hug or go on or, or we're busy, but it's just kind of inserted in. But the point is, because the point is to direct intense positive energy at your partner on a regular basis. And the rationale behind that we're beginning to discover. And I say beginning because I think it's been, we, we discovered it's been true all along. The important part about the architecture of our minds is memory. And what you want to do is create memories so that when you see each other, your memory base um, is, oh, my God, this person in the room uh, loves me uh, and I'm really safe with this person. Instead of when you do all kinds of negative stuff, your brain sees this person and goes on alert because you remember the hurt. So you want to build a repertoire of memory, uh, not to counter the negatives, but to, but it will do that anyway, but to simply build that up as the storehouse. Um, and memory is so important in relationships, more important in all, all relationships, because it's memory that we have. That's our inner world. It's basically a storehouse of memories in the amygdala uh, and the hippocampus as a result of the quality of our interactions 
with other people and other things in the outside world. So when you get that clear, then the question is, what kind of memories do I want Helen to have of me? And then I'm responsible for making sure she has those memories. Uh, and if I don't think intentionally about that, then she'll have the memories of my reactive behavior in which uh, I trigger her um, her uh, her uh, cortisol and her amygdala rather than memories of um, positive behavior in which I trigger endorphins um, and the parts of the brain that experience pleasure. Mm, yeah, I like that way of articulating. It seems to touch into the idea of creating a vision for your relationship. But what a I, I could just see that as being a really great way to reflect on that question of what direction do you want to be responsible for in your relationship? If yeah. you're saying like, what are the memories that I want my partner to have of me? Well, then that casts an interesting light on some of the things that we do, you know, whether it's the ways that we're so caring or the ways that we're careless. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and we have the power to do that. We have the power to populate our partner's memory system with what we want them to know about us. <clears throat> and we can't do that by telling them how we'd like them to think about us. We have to behave so that, because the brain uh, organizes and remembers behaviors that are emotionally intense. Uh, it, it, it records everything according to the brain scientist, but you can't access or, or the things you can most easily access are events that are connected to intense emotion. So if I want Helen to have memories of me as a caring person, somebody she feels safe with, wants to be around, looks forward uh, to being with, and when I walk into the room, she relaxes instead of tenses up. I have to create those memories in her mind. Uh, she can't do it because she can only create memories out of her experience of me. So I have to provide those experiences. Hmm. Yeah, I want to just point out to you listening that um, if you're interested, obviously we're talking about this whole backdrop of creating safety in your relationship. And we've had a lot of episodes about that. But in particular, if you want to go into the science of that, um, I do recommend episode 34, which is called The Science of, Sa of Safety with Steve Porges, where he goes into detail about um, his polyvagal theory and how that um, how that plays out in terms of how you feel with your partner, whether you feel safe or not, and and that's so important. I'm wondering. Um, oh, so, one uh, so I want to make a record of that. I'd like to hear Porges's uh, thing. Is number thirty four, episode thirty four? Yeah, and I can send you a link for that. Hard I'd on. love to have that. Yeah, yeah, I'd appreciate it. Too. Yeah, we quote him all the time. We'd love to hear <clears throat> everything he has to say. Absolutely. Um, what we discovered when we discovered him, which is now about five years ago, and I think he sort of showed up in the culture about five years ago uh, out of the clinic, or at least it was the first one or two uh, panels that he was on, and one of them we were on, right. in which we heard him and right. realized this guy had established the neurophysiology of the theory of safety that we'd been espousing for years and assumed that uh, all this impact on the brain, but we had, uh, since that material had not been invented about the, the micro details of that, we of course couldn't do that tracing, but
but he gave the roadmap. Um, and so we are trying to absorb everything. So Porges, we think, is one of the great contributors uh, to understanding human relationships. I'm curious for you, too, um, because and we don't have to spend too much time on this, but when you mentioned earlier that you used to have an exercise that was about kind of venting your frustration and your anger, I was thinking about how, like, for some people who are, let's say, depressed, that's often because they're not able to express really painful feelings that they have. And when you brought that up, it made me think that that could be one of those distinctions between the things that might actually be helpful for you if you're on an individual growth path versus what's helpful in relationship, that the skills of relating are are different in many respects. That's very perceptive. Mm -hmm. That's very perceptive, insightful, Mm -hmm. yes. Yes, Mm -hmm. that, that in a private session where you don't have somebody else to absorb your negative energy that you might do the gestalt process of putting them in a chair uh, or just saying it to your therapist uh, and be able to push into the feelings you've blocked. But if your partner's in the room, you then compound the problem because now your partner has memories. And what we found is that if you, in a relationship, if you uh, are depressed and you're, you're really sitting on your memories, that if we put can... And, and we do push you into positive expression that um, that those other negative memories will come up, but you'll report them rather than cathart them. Mm. And reporting that I'm feeling angry is a very different communication with your partner than I am angry, um, you know, because yeah. of, of the uh, neurochemical impact of the two reports. The yeah. first one, your prefrontal cortex will handle that might be curious, might be defended, you might have to work on it. But the second one is if you yell, your prefrontal cortex uh, yields to the amygdala. And and that's what's remembered. Uh, Then you have to kind of go back up there and say, I better not come back and do something bad like that to you. Uh, If you're, you know, if you're wise enough and experienced enough to regulate that, if you're not, then you'll just counterpunch. And then you have the tragedy of the human race, which is conflict and violence. Um, I think a big thing is um, that uh, in the 70s, there was a a belief in catharsis, that people had been sitting on their feelings, and that was very pathological. And and if you could get it out of your system, uh, you would be a more sane person. And that was before... The, the breakthroughs in the area of newer science in the 1990s, where the more you run through a neural pathway, the more fortified it becomes. And I think even with gestalt uh, uh, processes by yourself, it puts you in that lower brain and I don't know that the catharsis really uh, releases anything. I noticed that in myself, of course, I try not to um, express, talk to Harville from my lower brain. But even if he weren't there, I, I feel like I have so much more of a command 
uh, I, I feel like I'm so much more the person I want to be when even when I'm alone talking to someone else or even my own thoughts if I can express my own thoughts in a way that aren't it's not about Harville's letting me down or I'm frustrated by what Harville is doing or da 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 if I can really stay into I wonder why Harville is doing this and I wonder if there's a way I could communicate to him that we could end up um, with me feeling better and we're both still connected. Um, but anyway, the, the, the big thing I would say, Neil, is that once you're in that lower brain, neuroscience says that the neural energy can be hijacked and you lose access to the upper brain where mm-hmm. you can create win-wins and where you can, you know, the lower brain is it's my way or the highway. Get with it. I want it my way for now. Give it to me my way. And that's too bad. If you don't <laughs> like that's the lower brain. And the upper brain goes, huh, I wonder, we totally disagree on this subject, but is there a way that I can get what I want and you can get what you want too? Why don't we talk about this and see if we can both end up getting what we want? It's just such a different part of your brain that the more you exercise that part, um, the more you're likely to have a better relationship where both people being, you know, you don't feel like you've given up something. Once again, for your partner, you're getting something you want and your partner's getting something that they want and they both feel like, I mean, that's a moment of triumph every time you do that. But it's all about staying out of that lower brain. And I think you're right, Helen, that that's something that that we need to experience over and over again so that you're you're amplifying that neural pathway and, and getting how different of an experience it is from going, you know, going limbic to um, to actually staying in the creative space, even when you're on the edge of your trigger and and getting practice with hanging on to that and say and being resourceful um it seems like there's a lot of profound growth that comes from that and it reminds me of your behavior change request um that way of turning a frustration around into something that's actually positive so i'm wondering if you could touch on that for a moment um <clears throat> well, the, uh, the you want to come in on that? Yeah. So, so yes. So uh, what we uh, want to be clear about with couples is that it is it is necessary to deal with your frustrations, especially those that are emotionally charged, because uh, we now know that there is a pretty much of a a one to one correlation between. Uh, a trigger that is emotionally charged and and need unmet in childhood. So <clears throat> that if you constantly angry about your partner being late uh, or they don't open the door for you, that you know what would appear to be um, uh, mild triggers, but but you respond uh, to it with intensity, then uh, we know that that's not only comes from your childhood. But very early in childhood, uh, before the hippocampus came online, which is about the age of three or four, 
to record events with feelings, events uh, that, that were emotionally charged. <clears throat> but prior to that, you have basically um, emotional memories housed in the amygdala instead of the hippocampus, which, are, which the amygdala does not record events. The, uh, when the amygdala experiences an emotion, a trigger and an emotion, if there is a correlation with an event, it then uh, activates in the um, library in the hippocampus so that those two get connected. But most of the things that have emotional intensity are, do not have a correlating memory in the hippocampus because it happened before the hippocampus came online. So, um, when, so it's really important that those be taken seriously. So instead of the cathartic method, um, what we have um, helped couples do is identify the behavior that triggers you, and we call that a frustration. Identify that behavior. It's like you're you late, uh, a partner's late, uh, or you left the light on, or um, even innocent things like uh, you left the cap off the toothpaste, whatever, whatever triggers you. Um, and, and interpret the frustration as a wish in disguise, that the frustration is not just a negative energy pool. The negative energy pool is there because a need was not met and that there's a desire for a need to be met, namely uh, that you be on time, namely that, uh, that you are orderly in the bathroom uh, for whatever reasons that have to do with your childhood, that's, that's the need. So what we ask couples to do is to do a structured process that is uh, based on the, the template of it is the dialogue process, mirroring, validating, and empathizing, which they identify the frustration, change it into a wish, and then uh, ask for three things, three behaviors, any one of which would be a response to the wish. And we give three because um, what, what we learn is that what you need from your partner to which intense emotions are attached is uh, something your partner is going to have difficulty giving because your partner uh, shut down that part of themselves in their childhood that they would need access to to respond to your unmet childhood need. So if you give them, say, I want you to always be on time or, or, or whatever, uh, and they only have one choice, uh, then often the partner fails. But if you give them three choices um, and ask the partner to pick the one they know they can do, but it would require a little stretch, then the partner uh, who shut down that part of themselves that the needy partner um, needs from the partner, that part of themselves as a resource for their partner, can begin stretching into that because that part of them that was shut down in their childhood is a part of themselves that they need in order to have a fully functioning psyche. Like in my case, I got my feelings were shut down in childhood. And so guess what? I marry somebody who wants me to be emotional. And like, you got to be kidding. I don't do emotions. I send cards, letters, and I can hug you, but don't ask me to cry to be you know, uh, intensely emotional. Well, Helen wanted emotion. So uh, when w once you know this theory, you know that I married her because she would ask for that. She married me because she knew I didn't have it. 
and that she needed it because of her childhood. So when she asked me for it, it becomes a gift because as I stretch to give her that, I activate, uh, like in the flooding exercise, I activate the unexpressed positives um, that uh, have, have never been done. And I grow that part of me into being an affectionate human being, expressing my love with emotion rather than just with behaviors. And that grows me into my wholeness and also at the same time uh, satisfies Helen's need to have an uh, emotionally available partner. So that exercise is really transformative and it's the most challenging thing that we do because it, uh, it assaults the point of the impasse between most partners. That that's, that's the impasse is what I need the most is what you're least capable of doing and vice versa. What you need the most is what I'm least capable of doing. And therefore, we're going to sit here for 5, 10, or 15, or 20 years or get a divorce uh, or fight over this or go our separate ways in a parallel marriage because that won't yield until it's changed. So it's a very powerful exercise. And Helen, you look like you want to say something about it. No, just uh, you explained it very well. Um, I'll add, though, uh, since you asked, that Learning to ask for what you want, I think, is the biggest problem in a relationship. And also asking with what we call sender responsibility, which means kind tone of voice, kind look in your eye, uh, respectfully asking, and um, communicating in a way that increases the likelihood that your partner will get curious and agree to do it. And um, turtles are terrible minimizers, or let's let's put it, well, usually one person in the relationship who tends to contain their feelings, they're terrible at asking for what they want um, because they don't even know. All they know is something's not right, but they don't even know what they want. And so you really, they really have to cultivate it. And the other person in the relationship who may be the more expressive, talkative one, they're terrible at it too <laughs> because, <laughs> because they're, they too are sort of wordy and can't be succinct and usually can't be pleasant about making their request yeah. in a way their partner will want to do it. So, it's a practice. That's what you should do on the Sabbath every day is practicing, <laughs> practicing asking for little tiny things, you know, so that you can get better and better and better at it. Because I, I believe that everyone is married to someone uh, who's longing to be a hero or shero in their life. They want to come through for their partner. But with all the negativity, it beats them down. And, uh, and if they're vague, and if they go, well, by, I'm not going to tell you what, what I'm wanting right now, because if you don't know by now, we've been together this many <laughs> years, and you haven't figured it out, I am not going to tell you. You know, that attitude, <laughs> that <laughs> partner can't come through yeah. for them, but they want to be a great lover. So it's a, it's a way that both people collaborate in, in a relationship that has gotten stale. Yeah. And I, Helen, I want to appreciate the fact that you, uh, and I don't do this, you keep reminding everybody about sender responsibility. 
Uh, and that's one of the big, um, among many things that you bring into memory, that the way you talk, and the other phrase you have is the way you talk about it is important, not what you talk about. That's, the, that's how you say it, not what you say. That the sender responsibility, even doing this exercise, you can't just be your naughty self. You have to be responsible even in your frustration and asking for it. Because if if you don't, you, you do something. The other thing, Ellen, I want to appreciate this, and I've never said this to you before, is that only a woman who is emotionally expressive, and men are emotionally expressive too, so this is not a gender thing, but mainly um, hailstorms, which, which is we call the expressive person, uh, the, the larger percentage are women because of the way women and men have been socialized. And you're the, uh, have the guts, and as a woman do say, to hailstorms, hey, by the way, uh, you don't know what you want either. Uh, because it's often been, it's sort of a cultural cliche that women are more relational than men, that they are more in touch with their feelings than men are, and therefore men needs to get in touch with their feelings. And Helen says, well, you know what, that's a, that's a myth. Uh, women uh, may be in touch with their angry feelings, but, but they're not in touch with their desires. But they're lousy at communicating it <laughs> communicating. in a way that engages their partner. Yeah. They're just, you know, you know, and, and all all the expressive one can see is how the one who's not expressive, like they're like a robot, like their computer. Well, who wants to be married to someone like that who's not feeling? But then. They don't see that they too don't know how to engage in a simple way that empowers their partner to succeed. I just had the other images. One is a robot whose feelings are there. The other one is a robot with a blown fuse. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love your suggestion too, <laughs> Helen, around um, like finding small small things to request. That, that don't have the charge to them, but just see if you can practice with intention, knowing like, okay, I'm going to request this very simple thing to see if you can, and it, it might not even be about the request being fulfilled, but it's more about the practice of, can I make a request in a way that doesn't have a big charge attached to it and where I can even be a little outcome neutral about it? Yeah, yeah. Just to go through the practice right. of converting the frustration into the wish. Right. And that, that's a really hard thing for people to do. Um, but it's liberating when they get it uh, in the workshops that the frustration is a wish in disguise. Go to the wish and leave the frustration alone and your partner can become collaborative with you. But if you go to the frustration, your partner will become uh, defended against you. Mm, love it. When we started this conversation, I mentioned your new book, The Space Between. And I want to just give you a moment to talk about that as well as your Safe Conversations toolbox, both of which are available on your website, relationshipsfirst.org. What are you bringing to us in your new offerings? Well, the thank you for, for asking that. Uh, the um, the Toolbox is an online course for couples. It's uh, six uh, two-hour sessions that's uh, guided and uh, guides couples through uh, basically many of the processes that we talked about, maybe not in the detail, we just talked about it, but guides them through six 
basic uh, features of how to create and sustain a thriving relationship. Um, and that's on the website, and it's, uh, it's digital and uh, is now available. The book, Space Between, uh, is an attempt to put into language um, the uh, our new, um, I guess the word would be, it's a new model or a new uh, paradigm that the space between is where life happens. And that life happening in the space between is internalized by the mind uh, and becomes the world within. And that it, it, it offers an alternative to the uh, 100-year tradition in psychotherapy that life happens inside us and goes outside. And we're saying uh, actually life happens outside and goes inside and then back outside. It's the chicken and the egg. The chicken is the interactive space and the egg is the intrapsychic space. So it basically operates with that. But, the, but it's a very simple book, again, that talks about uh, everybody's looking for something. Uh, and what we think they're looking for is the sensation of full aliveness. And they're looking for it everywhere. But it's only available in the intricacy of an intimate partnership or a significant relationship with a non-intimate partner. That it's a relational sensation. Happens only in that. And then it goes through the what we call the safe conversations process and guides people and at the visual level, the reading level, through uh, processes that help you arrive at a safety. And safety then is the context within which connecting occurs and connecting, the felt sense of connecting is full of likeness. So it's, a, it's a, again, a kind of theoretical book but uh, laced all the way through with uh, practical exercises. Some of our readers are saying that it turns out to be the best book yet about how to, how to how have a thriving relationship. Both yeah. of those are on I, the web. I love, of course, getting the love you want. And there's so much in there that one thing I really appreciated about the space between was how distilled it was. And Helen, earlier you met, you mentioned the ability to speak succinctly. And I think that that book really benefits from that by taking some of these core practices that you offer people and giving them a way through this um, much more condensed book to experience that for themselves um, without being intimidated by too many pages, let's say. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. I, I have that tendency to, to be... Um, um, to, have, to have too many pages. The other thing to say about these two is that these are part of our not-for-profit work of bringing safe conversations to the culture so that all the money that comes in from this book and from the uh, online course goes back into the infrastructure to uh, distribute more safe conversation products to the world. Well, I want to take this moment to extend to both of you so much gratitude for taking the time to be with us today on Relationship Alive. I hope we can have you back again at some point in the future. And um, you're, you're doing the good work to help us evolve the way that we relate to each other. And as you mentioned in the space between, it's so clear that as a culture, we need that right now more than ever. Um, yeah. so, so thank you both, Helen and Harville, for being here on the show with us today. 
Well, yes. thank you, Neil, for having us again. Yes. And if you think we have anything else to say, call us and we'll have another talk. And enjoy, enjoy the main woods. Yes. And yes. enjoy the main woods. We thank will you. do it vicariously. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. And as a reminder, we will have detailed show notes for today's episode. To get them, all you have to do is visit neilsatin.com slash imago2. That's I-M-A-G-O and then the number two. Or you can text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And I'll send you a link to the show notes for this episode as well as all our other Relationship Alive episodes. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word passion, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.